This is what I get for answering the phone on a Saturday night. <laughs> and for all of, you, though, though, all of you who refuse to go to my class, this is your penalty. <laughs> no, teaching and learning from God's Word is a privilege and a blessing. So let's get right to it. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. Late in the afternoon, hello. Late in the afternoon on the day of Christ's resurrection. The risen Lord encounters two of his disciples, followers, not necessarily two of the remaining eleven. He meets them on the road to the village of Emmaus. We're familiar with the story. At first, they're not permitted to recognize Jesus, but then later, as, quote, he took the bread and blessed it, quote, end quote, their eyes were opened for them and they recognized him. What is pertinent to our study this morning is what happens in between those two scenes. And let's read how they describe Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus meets up with them as they're walking down the road and offhandedly asks them what they're talking about. They express surprise that he apparently is blithely unaware of the things that have recently transpired in Jerusalem. And I've always loved Jesus' simple, almost playful response. Oh, what things? Look at Luke 24. Let's begin with verse 19. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a mighty prophet indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us astounded us, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and not finding his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also said. But him they did not see. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. What Jesus keys off of in his reply is that virtually every one of the things they mentioned had been prophesied long before. These two disciples had every opportunity to recognize that precisely these events were foretold by the Messiah and for the Messiah. Now look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken... Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. To the surprise of many, including our two blinded disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Old Testament is chock full of Jesus the Christ. It is pressed down, shaken together, and running over with him. The astute reader will find references to him, prophecies about him, and actual visitations by him. And they all weave together to form a marvelous narrative about God's plan for man through the Messiah. Now before we really dig into this, we must define an important term that will be popping up in one or more of its several forms. Three forms, all synonymous. Most who have been in attendance here for even a short while will have heard this before, but let's make sure we're all on the same page. Messiah, the Hebrew Mashiach, in Greek, Messias, used in both the Old and New Testaments, means anointed, anointed one. And that equals Christ. Greek, Christos, New Testament and Septuagint. So Messiah, anointed, Christ, Mashiach, Christos, Messiah, all the same thing. They all mean an anointed one, an anointed one. All three terms are synonymous. And although we and the New Testament writers have shortened the latter term to Jesus Christ, technically it would be Jesus, comma, the Christ. That is, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Christ is not His last name. It's a title or description. All three of these terms mean anointed and are only capitalized when referring to Jesus as the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. Other than that, they refer to anyone who receives anointing as part of their being installed in one or more of three types of office, prophet, priest, or king. Ah, he got it up there. All three were anointed into office, so technically one could refer to any of them as Messiah or a Christ, simply because they were anointed. Let's look at three examples of this anointing. The first passage, the Lord speaking to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, includes the command to anoint both king and prophet. 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's read verses 15 to 16. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and you will arrive and anoint Haziel king of Aram. And Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mehalo, oh boy, I blew that. Abel something or other, you shall anoint as prophet in your place.
So that is both anointing kings, prophet. In Exodus 29, we read of the ceremonial consecration and installment of the first Levitical priest, other than Moses, Aaron. Exodus 29, and thank you for turning. You need to limber up your fingers today. Exodus 29, verses 4 to 7. The anointing of priest. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons near to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head, and anoint him. In both of these passages, the word for anoint is the verb mashach. It means to rub with oil, to anoint, by implication to consecrate to a, a service. Now why prophet, priest, and king? What is the significance of these three offices? What part do they play in the development of Christ in the Old Testament? Well, rather a lot, actually. And this is one of the most fascinating threads to follow regarding the Messiah. To give you the punchline first, only the true Messiah could be, and indeed was, all three. Only Him. There were a few individuals who were two of the three, and we'll look at those in a minute, but only Christ Jesus was all three. By prophecy, the Messiah had to be all three, and only one could be it. Moses was someone who was both priest and prophet. The logo behind me shows in red that priests spoke to God for man. The red upward arrow. The Pentateuch is replete with his pleading before the Lord on behalf of a sinning people. Let's look at just one in Numbers 21. We're in the neighborhood. Numbers 21. Let's read verses 6 to 9. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it happened that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. 
Not only did Moses perform the service of a priest, he was born into the Levitical tribe. Only later, of course, after Sinai, was it designated the only tribe from which priests could come. But his father and mother were Levites. Exodus 2, verses 1 to 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That was Moses. The logo also shows in brown that prophets brought the message of God down to man. The brown downward arrow. And we have an instance of this in Exodus 19 with Moses. Exodus 19. Verses 3 to 6. Now Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak, Moses, to the sons of Israel. In his role as both priest and prophet, that is, as a mediator, Moses was a type of the Messiah to come. After the days of King Saul, a king of Israel could only come from the tribe of Judah, while, as before, a priest had to be a Levite. Thus it was impossible for one person to be both. That's why Israel keeps, has at least in ancient times, kept such strict records. You could not go between the tribes. You could not be a priest if you were not a Levite. You could not be a king if you were not from Judah. But there was a man who was not a Jew, in fact lived in the time of Abram, before there was an Israel, who was both. The mysterious and fascinating Wait for it. Melchizedek. (laughs) Genesis 14, please. Genesis 14, beginning with verse 17. Then after he came back from striking down Cheddar Lomer and the kings who were with him, that is, Abram, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is an an ancient name for Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. 
Then he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of all. That is, Moses paid a tithe to Melchizedek as king and priest of Salem. As those who attended my class on the book of Hebrews can attest, I love Melchizedek. He's such a weird character. He just pops up out of nowhere. We don't know a thing about him. But he's a type of Christ. I'll restrain myself for now and cut right to why he plays a role in this story of Christ in the Old Testament. Psalms 110. Psalm 110 is a mind-blowing treasure of messianic prophecy. But for just right now, let's look at one verse in this song. Written by King David. Psalm 110. As he refers to a descendant of his, who will be his, David's, Lord. Who sits at the right hand of Yahweh. Chapter, verse, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. Yahweh has, Yahweh has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now there are other reasons Christ is said to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But for our purpose today, it's because He too is both priest and king. Finally, there was David, son of Jesse, who was both king and prophet. We need a bigger lip here. Stuff is sliding off. We all know he was a king. So let's look at a passage in 2 Samuel that refers to his role as a prophet and explicitly explicitly refers to him as one anointed. 2 Samuel chapter Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. (laughs) He's not full of himself, is he? The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, from brightness of the sun after rain, with the tender grass springing from the earth. There in verse 1, the word anointed. That's our word, Messiah, Mashiach. 
And in verse 2, it's the very definition of a prophet. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. That's it. That's a prophet. These three individuals, Moses, Melchizedek, and David, each held two offices. Priest-prophet, priest-king, prophet-king, respectfully, respectively. All three were anointed. That is, all three were messiahs. Small m. But there was one, another, capital M, messiah. And only he was anointed to all three offices. Only he was a prophet, priest, and king. And only he still reigns at the right hand of God the Father. We have a number of reasons these days to feel badly for Israel. There's one reason that kind of rises to the top. They're still looking for a Messiah. And by their law, it is impossible for them to find a new Messiah. Their records are gone. They don't know who's a Levite and who's from the tribe of Judah. They can't delineate between the two. They no longer can do that. And there's been only one person in all of history who fits every prophecy, every role, and every office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus of Nazareth. So we mourn for them that they're still looking for someone else. Only Jesus of Nazareth was anointed to all three offices. Only he was prophet, priest, and king, and only he still reigns at the right hand of God the Father. So let's look at each one of these in turn. Christ Jesus the prophet. These three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were ordained by God and responsible for leading the nation of Israel. But note again the essential differences between the three, as we see represented in the logo. The prophet spoke to the people from God. The priest represented the people to God. The king ruled the people for God, or in the name of God. Only the Messiah could and would be all three. The principal Old Testament reference for the Messiah as prophet, and by the way, the last messianic prophecy in the Pentateuch is found in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy, oops, Where's Deuteronomy? It's in the Old Testament, isn't it, Jim? Still is. Deuteronomy 18. Here Moses, a prophet in his own right, as well as a type of Christ, speaking to the people words from God, tells Israel that, quote, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And from the passage, we glean specific requirements that will identify and validate the Messiah, capital M. 
chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of Yahweh your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And Yahweh said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. From this passage, we have the eight requirements that must be met for someone to be the Messiah. First called by God, verse 15. An Israelite, verse 15. Like Moses, verse 15. He must have authority, verses 16 to 18. Be obeyed, verse 15. He must speak only God's word, verse 18. And be obedient to God, also verse 18. And he must certify himself, verses 21 to 22. Let's look at just one of these, the last, and and how Jesus fulfilled the requirement. Look at verses 21 to 22. Now you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, That is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. (laughs) When Nicodemus came to Jesus, this was his starting point. He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's where Nicodemus started. He acknowledged Jesus as in this, this office. The way for a prophet to certify his long-range prophecies was for his short-range prophecies to come true. And this Jesus did. For example, he told his disciples precisely what would happen regarding his arrest, his trial, his execution, burial, and resurrection. It all came true, just as he said. Now, Christ Jesus the priest. The setting in 1 Samuel 2 is the revelation of the egregious sins of the priest Eli's two reprobate sons, also priests. We needn't waste time on them. God will get rid of them in short order. But these facts set up the prophecy in our two verses. Not only were his sons worthless, but Eli was a pretty sad example of a father, which meant, of course, a sad example of a priest. 
winking at their transgressions. And in the words of a prophet who brought the condemning word of the Lord to Eli, honoring his sons above Yahweh. Verse 29. From verse 22 to the end of chapter 2, we have the Lord God pronouncing judgment on Eli and his sons, telling them in so many words, you blew it and the jig's up. I have someone better in mind for the priesthood. Then he declares in verses 35 to 36, But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him a faithful house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And it will be that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please, please assign to me one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. In other words, Eli's house, we're going to become paupers living in the streets. Now this prophecy from the, from the Lord has at least three fulfillments. The immediate application, the immediate fulfillment of it, of verses 35 to 36, is to the, one God, to the one God has in mind to replace Eli, that little boy of Hannah's, dedicated to the Lord, Samuel, who would be both prophet and priest. He would be faithful, whereas Eli's house was not. But the prophecy's fulfillment does not stop there. It could also be applied to the later Zadok, the faithful priest who stuck by King David and his son Solomon. Thus, he will walk before my anointed always, refers to Zadok serving the never-ending line and throne of David. But there's also an obvious far future fulfillment. By the way, we, we refer to this as now, not yet. It's a common way. There are immediate Fulfillments of a prophecy, but there's also a future one. Here's the not yet one. It's found in the Messiah. The anointed one, very son of God, will have no problem doing as the Lord says, according to what is in my heart and in my soul. Jesus himself said, I only do, I only say what God, what the Father tells me. The writer to the Hebrews gives us a word picture of Christ Jesus as priest that gives us a staggering truth in chapter 9. Turn there, please. Hebrews 9. He first describes the tabernacle system under the Old Covenant. Then in verses 6 to 7, he writes this. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the first part of the tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Then in verses 11 to 14, he writes, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, 
He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Now, let me pause here just a moment. Get, get this. Just, this is where you lean back in your chair and just dwell on this for a while. Go let everything wash away and dwell on this. Jesus did not just replace the high priest. When he walked into the Holy of Holies carrying the basin of blood, he was carrying his own blood to place on the mercy seat. His own blood. Christ is not just prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the slain lamb. The perfect, spotless lamb who carries his own blood into the Holy of Holies. He entered the holy places once for all. Once. Remember what it said about the high priest on earth? Continually entering. Over and over again. Why? Because as soon as he walked out, he committed a sin. He, Jesus, entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Finally, Christ Jesus the king. Oh my. If you've got the time, I could go a few hours on this alone, okay? No? (laughs) Well, then let's cut right to the final act of all things. Turn, please, to Revelation 5. I want you to follow this thread. If you're nodding off from lack of donuts, hang in there. I want you to follow this thread. Revelation 5, verses 1 to 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. Sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I, John, was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth chapter 17 in Revelation is about the evil empire formed on earth during the end times multiple nations all owing allegiance to the beast Antichrist. We read in verses 14 who they are waging war against. Chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the the called and elect and faithful. Finally, in chapter 19, the ancient prophecy is at last fulfilled. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful, and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems having a name written on him which no one knows except himself and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood his name is also called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath, of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the Old Testament, the astute reader will find references to Christ, prophecies about Him, and actual visitations by Him. It is so detailed, so specific, so undeniably accurate that one might even go so far as to consider the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-6, a first gospel account. But Jesus the Christ stands astride the entirety of God's Word. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verse 21. It's all about Him. 
When you study Revelation, when you study the end times, you realize it's all about Christ. He's there in eternity past, before time itself, before the first day of creation. He's there before time itself, and he takes his eternal throne on the new earth at the end of all things. The inauguration of the believer's eternal state. That's our Messiah. Father God, what a wonder you are. What a wonder is our Messiah, your Son, the Lamb slain, even our Savior. We give all glory and exultation to you and to the Son, to the Lamb. We bow down before him. And we thank you for your word which describes him to us. And now, Father, in obedience, we remember what he did for us. Through Communion. May you be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.